2: Hello and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a Conversation of Hope for Tuesday, October 27th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Brian King, and today we'll talk about being yourself and socially effective. Brian King is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in Naperville, Illinois. He brings a unique threefold perspective to the world of Asperger's. Brian is the father of three sons on the autism spectrum, has a practice focusing exclusively on working with Asperger's clients and their families, and is also an ASPE himself. Brian is a popular author and conference presenter who has become known worldwide for his positive approach to living the Asperger's experience. Brian, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Terry. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, first of all, I guess we'd better define what Asperger's is.
3: Well, I guess it really depends on who you ask. Uh, You have the the traditional medical model, which of course uh, defines Asperger's as on the higher end of the autism spectrum and refers to it as a syndrome. And its polar opposite on the autism spectrum is autistic disorder. And that label alone has a lot of implications for the people that are on the receiving end of that label. Uh, My clients in particular resist it because of the very notion that it means they're broken. the way I like to define it is that it's a specialized way of thinking that pretty much renders someone specialized in one area but then having challenges in another, specifically in the area of social interaction. So I know it's kind of a lengthy response to your question, but the way you define it has a lot to do with how you define the problems it causes and then what solutions you seek in order to address those problems.
2: Right, that's a very good point. Um, sometimes people uh, look at individuals with Asperger's Syndrome and they they might also use the term high-functioning autism, but that is that true?
3: Well, honestly, in, in terms of clinically speaking, there are no criteria for high-functioning autism. That's just some clinical jargon that's kind of worked its way into the mainstream. But in... In terms of what is Asperger's, what is high-functioning, it's really a judgment call. There can be a lot of overlap. Uh, my understanding from the people that I've talked to who use that term, uh, high-functioning autism is begins by looking backwards. You, you look at the, the person when they were younger, and if there was a speech delay, which pretty much puts them more in the autism category clinically than the Asperger's category, then you look at them now and say, well, because they began more autistic and they've gained more verbal ability now, and they look more Asperger's because they began autistic, we're going to call it high-functioning autism. That's my understanding of how clinicians tend to differentiate between the two.
2: All right. Now, I wasn't originally going to bring this up, but you mentioned something about individuals. Um, you alluded to individuals resenting somebody, thinking they needed to be, you know, like repaired, fixed or something. Mm-hmm. Uh And... I know that there's been some discussion in the community um, where th- some individuals will say, You know we don't want to be fixed, and then there are other individuals who have uh physiological problems that prevent them from from being healthy and functioning uh well and safely and independently uh children who are ill, for example who have syndrome autism how do you feel about the two sides of that question
3: well my biggest concern is that people are speaking they need to be speaking from their own perspective but they're also feeling compelled to speak for the other side you know myself for instance i have some intestinal issues but i don't have the same intensity of those issues that make it difficult for me to to eat even the simplest of foods so I feel in no way that I am competent enough to speak for that group. So when there are other people in, in my, my end of the spectrum who feel uh, confident enough to speak for, for people with, with greater challenges, I wish they wouldn't, you know, because it really complicates the dialogue. It's, it's the, the same concern I have when uh, neurotypical parents would say I know what's best for my child and I know what my child needs when they haven't consulted the child. And in my case, I'm talking about children that can speak for themselves Mm -hmm. as opposed to the more nonverbal, more challenged kind. But when somebody is in physical pain, I consider that tantamount to somebody who has psychological pain, like a depression or something. And by virtue of that pain, it really limits the options they have for their life.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So that that limitation, it's important to address it in a way that it increases a person's options. I, by no means, by virtue of my challenge, that the, the various challenges that I continue to have in terms of executive functioning, organization, I don't want to be so married to those things that I say no. I have a, I feel a right to be, you know, limited in this way. That that just that logic doesn't follow. So if there is a child that has a physical challenge, by all means, if that can be addressed, address it. But I think the the concern that comes from uh, people on the higher end of the spectrum that I've talked about, the concern is that it won't stop there. That in addressing the physical challenge, you also want to go after the psychological uh, eccentricities or nuances that are actually beneficial. So I think there's a concern on, on... the Asperger's side of things that the parents who want to address the more physical aspects of of autism are taking an all-or-nothing approach to it. You know, like, let's get rid of all of it. And I, I think that's where a lot of that concern comes from. I don't see it that way because I've had a lot of challenges in my past with anxiety, with depression, and all kinds of challenges, and I feel I can address those things independently without having to eradicate the good parts of who I am. So I think if, If autism, in its classic sense, is addressed in that manner, then I I think we're very much on the same page. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, you've you've mentioned anxiety. Um, Is there a higher degree of anxiety, do you think, among individuals with Asperger's?
3: Well, it it, seems, again, I can really only speak from my own experience. I don't want to make any generalized comments. Sure. But in in speaking from my own experience, my children, my clients, and, and the others, that I've come across it seems to be a constant you no know, like it's it's part of the baseline of our experience and the reason anxiety is present is because we have this overall difficulty with problem solving in the moment and this anxiety is anticipation of oh my goodness when is the next problem coming along that i don't know how to solve
4: mm.
3: and that challenge comes with the the mental effort that it takes to think in an organized fashion, because problem solving is all about thinking in an organized way. And I watched my seven-year-old try to make his lunch in the morning, and as much as he can do it, what I was able to guess from him the other day is, it's hard to get everything together. I mean, you know where the bread is, it's in the same place. The peanut butter is in the same place, but for his mind to just say, okay, I need to think and focus right now on the things I need to bring together to make this happen. Then he has the fine motor challenges of manipulating the knife, to cut the crust off, to spread everything on there, and for him that is mentally exhausting. So he dreads the idea of making a sandwich. For somebody else who doesn't have those challenges to say, oh, he's just being lazy, he just doesn't want to do it. But when you talk to him and watch him, this is a mental effort like anybody else might not appreciate. So imagine going through life having to make the deliberate choice to focus on something and then organize your brain to solve that problem. Now imagine your entire life is about solving problems, which is but what all of us do. We solve the problem of what clothes am I going to wear today? Um, you know, what am I going to have for breakfast? And there is a systematic process that happens automatically in the neurotypical brain that people on the spectrum have the challenge with. And so there's always an underlying anxiety of, oh, my goodness, what's coming next?
2: Wow. I, when you look at it that way, uh, then you really feel compassion for the person.
3: Yeah, that's, that's my everyday experience. I mean, people hear me, me speak very eloquently, and I've developed that ability over time, but I focus with absolute intensity on choosing my words precisely. And after a, a day of working with clients, I go home mentally spent because of, of having run that mental marathon through the course of a day. But yeah, the, the other Spectrumites that I talk to, once I, I reveal this insight to them and say, is this is this true for you? Is this what it seems to take in order for you to, to solve these problems of the day? They, they throw their arms up and say, yes, that's, can you please explain it to my friends? Can you please explain that to my parents? Because by virtue of my my verbal abilities, I'm able to articulate my own experience and kind of help others translate it throughout their lives.
2: Well, it's, it's really cool that you uh, are able to share this insight to help others that you're someone coming from the same perspective rather than, quote-unquote, an, an outsider trying to make judgments for someone else but who can't really feel it. Right. Yeah, that's very
3: and, cool. I mean, and, and that insight exists within the spectrum. I mean, there. Even though I have this experience of, of having Asperger's or whatnot, I make a point of not taking for granted that every aspect of my experience here is the next aspect.
4: All
2: right. Very good. We will be right back from the break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica. We'll be right back with Brian King at Voice America. <laughs>
5: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
6: Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern day Renaissance man, Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within, broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America health and wellness channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival.
2: Before the break, Brian, you had been explaining that uh, a lot of the anxiety that individuals with Asperger's may be feeling has to do with problem solving and, and problem solving to a magnitude much greater than the layperson would imagine, where even making a sandwich becomes uh, a, so, sounded like a major project. I would have thought um, that much anxiety also came from so, uh, social skills issues, feelings of isolation. Am I on the right track with that? Well,
3: a lot of it, it's important to look at anxiety in the context in which it occurs because a lot of the anxiety, anxiety at home versus anxiety in school versus in a public place, uh, it could be a sensory issue. You know, the the overall irritation of the system of being overloaded with all this input that you can't sort out, uh, In a social situation, it could be the anxiety of being afraid of looking bad because you don't know what to do. So in that case, it's anticipation anxiety, the anticipation of if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to look bad in front of somebody else. So it's important to understand it in the context.
2: All right. So how do we work through these issues?
3: The first thing to work through it, and and again, it's crucial that the individual on the spectrum be involved in this, because it's first and foremost, it's acknowledging what the problem is. And in the context of it's another person, if you just have this feeling of overwhelming anxiety, but you don't know where it's coming from, then how on earth can you go about managing it, decreasing it, and dealing with it in that moment? Once you identify the problem is, the problem is in the social situation, I'm afraid of looking bad. Okay, once you've identified that problem, what do you need to do to address the fear of looking bad. Can you teach certain skills that would make that less likely to occur? If so, then a person goes into that situation with a greater sense of competence, they have more tools to address that fear, so it no longer is it a concern because you have those tools. If the anxiety is caused by being in a grocery store because of a sensory issue and you know it's because there's too much sensory input coming in, then you can say, all right, having defined that problem, what senses are being overloaded here in the store? And what resources do I have at my disposal in order to deal with that?
2: Let's, let's talk about a concrete example. Um, if you have a teenager, perhaps, and he's uh, trying to join in laughing with people but is laughing at what they would perceive as inappropriate times or in an inappropriate manner, how do you encourage that person to be themselves but still uh, fit into that social situation so that they feel better about the experience.
3: Well, something else needs to happen first and he needs to know, as I say, he or she, or I guess it really doesn't matter for the, the purpose of the conversation, but what tends to be the breakdown in that moment is a person on the spectrum wants to join in and feel included in that, but they have no concept of what they want to contribute. That's why they just kind of jump in randomly. Okay, everybody else is, is laughing, so I'll just laugh. I don't know when to laugh, but everybody else is laughing, so I'll just do it randomly. They're very hit or miss in their approach. So one of the main solutions there is to determine what do I want to contribute because then once they determine that, then you can be very targeted in what manner you're going to do so. Let's say you don't know anything about the topic that's being discussed, but you want to be part of the conversation. Perhaps your contribution is simply listening. Or perhaps your contribution is asking a very direct question such as, hey, guys, what are we talking about here? Those very simple ways of connecting that, again, begin with knowing what you want to contribute. Because simply wanting to be a part of something isn't enough. It's too vague. You need to know in what way you want to be a part. So I guess it always boils down to first defining what does it mean to connect with this group? And once you know what that is, then you can have very specific connection skills.
2: All right. What if your interests are limited and you, you want to be around people, but your interests are limited and aren't necessarily things that they're interested in? How can you be yourself and still be with the other people?
3: Well, what I've found about the whole limited interest thing is, and again, and the people that I've talked to and in reflecting upon my own experience, Because of the fear of looking bad is so great, you will always default to areas where you know you are competent, and you are very unlikely to look bad because you're the resident expert. And as soon as someone starts talking about something you can't relate to, you're afraid of looking bad, so you want to pull it right back to where you're competent. So in order to encourage people to start thinking about discussing other topics, you first need to address that need that need to feel competent, that need to look good in front of other people. Once you realize that it is possible to look good by being teachable, to look good by supporting somebody else in their interests, then you can begin being open to the idea of not knowing something. But it first comes down to understand that basic fact. I don't want to look bad, so if I stay the expert, and I'm always the center of attention, I'll look good all the time. So it's always beginning more simple than that. You know, one of the things that is really missed in in a lot of the social skills trainings is they jump light years ahead of where the person's at. Say, we need to teach them, you know, conversation openings, we need to teach them social skills and chit-chat and all that, when they haven't hit the basics of what is this individual trying to accomplish and what's preventing them from accomplishing it. You know, it's that, that fear of looking bad, that fear of not being competent in front of your peers. Because, I mean, I, I don't know how long it's been since you've been a teenager. You know, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. But I remember just how unforgiving the social environment can be when you don't do it perfectly. Hmm. And and when you imagine that you're somebody on the spectrum who, as a matter of routine, does things a bit outside the box in a very eccentric manner and in such an unconventional way that when others see it, they're like, what are you doing that for? That's weird. I mean... It's not at the least bit supportive.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: They don't come up and say, oh, it looks like you're trying to accomplish something. Let me, let me try and figure out and help you, you make this connection here. Peers don't do that. They jump on you. They criticize you.
4: Mm-hmm. So
3: that only intensifies the person's feeling of, as you said earlier, isolation mm-hmm. or disconnect. The more you make an effort and the more you're rejected by your peer group, the more isolated you feel, and in some respects, that can intensify your desperation to be included. Mm -hmm. So you'll come on stronger, you'll come on with greater intensity, but with still the same deficit in skills that you had before. So your own effort, your own motivation can actually make your differences even more obvious. Mm
2: -hmm. So what's the most important social skill that parents can uh, try to help uh, move their child forward with?
3: In my estimation, it's Mm -hmm. clarification.
2: Okay. Okay.
3: Because when you have a child on the spectrum that misses the subtle nuances of, of the nonverbal, assume that you're not getting all the information correctly. I mean, even when I talk to neurotypicals, nonverbal is unreliable. I mean, we have, we have something called the poker face, you know, where somebody can choose their facial expression. They can pretend to be happy when they're not. Now, people can choose and alter their vocal tones. I mean, when you, when you go to learn how to be a professional speaker, they teach you how to manipulate your face and your body posture and everything to communicate a certain message that you want to communicate. So people can actually decide to be incongruent. They can be deceptive. So it's really important to realize nonverbal is unreliable. Also, when you have somebody on the spectrum that tends to be a unitasker, they're more visual or more auditory or more tactile. Uh, you see this a lot in the classroom. If a teacher is more likely to lean towards the visual, but you have an auditory student, well, and they say to the teacher, well, I need some help, and the teacher says, let me show you, when what the teacher needs is to have it explained, the student needs to know to ask for clarification auditorily like, excuse me, Mr. or, or Ms. so-and-so, it would be very helpful if you would tell me what it is you want me to know. Can you clarify for me what you want me to learn through my ears? Because seeing it isn't going to work for me. Or more tactile, like my seven-year-old, can I get my hands in it? Can I work with it and figure it out that way? But the clarification is all about asking for the information you need in a more concrete way. Because the the abstract of the social nuances, of vocal tone and, and physical posture, those are too easy to misread, and they're all coming at you at one time. It's really important for a, a person on the spectrum to really get the information through the one stream of input that's most reliable to them, whether it's visual, auditory, kinesthetic, or tactile, because that is the most reliable way to get the information you need the way you need it in the most reliable format.
2: So you think that parents should... Uh, try to help their child figure out what that most reliable pathway is and encourage their child to ask for help in that manner when they need it?
3: Absolutely.
2: How does the child know when they need help?
3: Well, that's the bigger question. That There are, are so many steps to that. that one of the, the bigger obstacles there is that knowing that help exists Because when you have a child that is very disconnected from other people, the simple act of trying to make the connection to ask for help can be seen as so problematic it's not even considered as an option. I mean, I talk to adults on the spectrum now that just say, I have to do it myself or I'm a failure. And I ask them, well, why is that? Why do you have to do it yourself? And they say, well, because it's too hard to ask other people. Or when they do ask for help, it's discouraged or it's criticized. They say, "Well, that's common sense. You should know that." Or, "Well, just use your head or figure it out yourself, and then come back to me." So when they do make an effort to ask for help, it's sabotaged. When you you look at the school system, it sends mixed messages in terms of help. Like all three of my kids have IEPs, and when I hear how the teachers operationalize it, they give you the support, they give you all the help to build these skills, in the idea that you will eventually not need help. So if you understand the contradiction in that, we're going to give you help so that you won't need it. Hmm. And then when they do ask for help, it's, well, did you try and figure it out yourself first before you asked me? So in one breath they're saying they want you to self-advocate and ask for help, but every time you do, they don't say, oh, thank you for asking, let me help you. They give you some kind of message that makes you wonder, why did I even bother? So you you give your kids these messages all the time, and then that's coupled with the the Spectrumite's very difficult time of organizing in a way to ask for help. And here's another nugget before I forget. My 7-year-old has some speech difficulties. And in addition to fine motor, you know, the whole sandwich issue, imagine what it takes to organize your thinking and then turn that into the necessary mouth muscle movement to ask for help.
2: Wow. Well, well, let's pick up with this when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzo Medico. We'll be right back with Brian King on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel.
5: Opinions, options,
1: answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: before the break, you were talking about uh, the situation where schools will teach individuals to ask for help and then uh, kind of squash their asking for help. Uh, what is the balance bet- between when individuals with Asperger's should appropriately ask for help and when they should be doing things uh, more so in a manner that helps them have the skills to live independently eventually? Hello?
3: Hi, this is Brian. I can't hear Terry anymore. Hello? There you are, Terry.
2: Okay. You
3: got lost in cyberspace.
2: Were you able to hear the question?
3: I heard you start to ask the question.
2: Okay. What's the balance between in, uh, having individuals with Asperger's keep asking for help and also fostering the skills that they will need to live independently?
3: Well, in, let's first clarify the idea of, of independent living. In my experience, in speaking from my own life and, and what I hope my own children, it's crucial to foster more interdependent living because there are still challenges that I have that I routinely need to go to people to help me negotiate those areas of my life where I have challenges, especially in the areas of, of finance, making decisions on big purchases, um, some decisions or some relationship challenges I have. It's very important for me to be cognizant of those areas where I really need another brain or two in the problem-solving process. So it's more a matter of realizing these are my challenges, what resources do I have at my disposal, and how do I access them? Because when people talk about independent living, they tend to mean live like I do. And it's more important to teach a person how to ask for help than how to learn to do without it. Because I think if that idea was a lot more flexible, we could probably have a lot more people on the spectrum living in a more interdependent way as opposed to feeling like failures because they can't do everything the same way the neurotypicals who are encouraging them to live are doing.
2: Okay. Point well taken. And you have a concept uh, about pe- uh, people doing things with other people. Right.
3: And when you consider, see, with happens all the time. We do something with each other. We do things with our environment. I mean, right now I'm breathing the air in the room. And when you are, you know, in the, in the swimming pool, you're doing something with the water. I mean, there, there's always interaction going on. And it's important to understand that when we go through life, there is this constant interaction, whether it's with the other person or whether it's with uh, an aspect of your environment or whether it's with yourself. You know, how in tune are you with where is this anxiety coming from? Where is this fear coming from? So we're talking about self-awareness. You know, how well are you interacting with yourself? One of the best examples of interacting with yourself is your, your own feedback. You know, when something doesn't go the way you want it, is your, your feedback to yourself, well, that was stupid, or what were you thinking? You know, so working with yourself in that manner can mean the difference between whether you feel competent or incompetent.
4: Hmm.
3: And that has just tremendous implications. And what you are asking before, the question about the school environment and the mixed messages and, and living interdependently, the idea of interdependence is fostering skills about how to perceive the relationship you're having in that moment. Because interdependent, the way it is, tends to be taught to people with special challenges is to learn to do without others. Now, here's an crucial thing to understand. When you're dealing with people on the spectrum, the biggest challenge they have is doing with other people. So why on earth would you want to encourage them to do without others?
2: Okay, point well taken. You also have something called the life team strategy. Does that have anything to do with what you just talked about?
3: It does in a way. Um, The life team strategy is something that I've refined over the years, it is basically a five-point way that I have figured out to understand the complexities of the world, and what I have, have uh, refined it to now is there are five different ways of having a conversation with the environment, and the five ways are the starter, the sneezer, the sitter, the shaver, and the shouter. And the starters are the go-to people, the ones that have the resources. And but that's in the, the person sense. In the object sense, a starter would be There's a bright light. I need my sunglasses. So that object solves that problem for me. Uh, A sneezer is somebody who gives me encouragement, gives me support, uh, but doesn't necessarily have any resources to give me. They just have their encouragement. Uh, A sitter is something that's neutral, really doesn't have any value for me. It's there. You know, I can relate to it, but it doesn't solve a problem. A shover is something that's in direct opposition. Let's say that I really want to focus in a school environment but the fluorescent lights are on, Somebody's squeaking in their chair. So those two things are in direct opposition of my desire to focus. And then uh, the shouters are the negativities. They're the opposite of the sneezers. sneezers. Sneezers offer encouragement. Shouters offer criticism. So I look at everything in my world through the lens of those five things. So when I want to ask for help, per se, I want a starter. I want somebody who's going to give me that help. So if I approach somebody else and ask for help, and they say, oh, I really don't know how to help you, uh, but but keep asking, you know, I, I think you'll find it. That person's a sneezer. It's not that they're denying me help, it's that they don't uh, they don't have what I need, but they're encouraging me. A shouter would be, I'm not going to tell you, figure it out for yourself. They have the answer, but they refuse to give it to me. And a shouter would, would say something like, what are you, stupid? You should already know that. So by looking at things through those five lenses, it's able, I'm able to make it less personal for myself, and I say, okay, the interaction here is not the one I want. I want a starter interaction. I want the information I want. So it it makes it a lot easier to not take it as a personal attack or a criticism because I've made it about the interaction I'm having. So I say, uh I want help on this, can you help me? And then I encounter a shover. Well, I'm not going to tell you, okay, sorry, this is not the interaction I was looking for. I was looking for a starter one. So I keep asking until I find the person who's going to give me the kind of interaction I'm looking for. Does that make
2: sense? Yeah, I think maybe all too often in family situations you end up with shouters, people who are giving negative feedback to the individual. Yeah.
3: And a lot of criticism like that, unfortunately, is not designed to solve the problem. It's all about assigning responsibility for the problem. You know, And that's what a lot of criticism is, is. No, it's your fault. And if you weren't acting like this, and if you didn't think that way, we wouldn't have this problem. When it makes more sense to say, okay, the problem exists, what is the problem, and how do we solve it? And much more of a starter interaction is going to be about that. Mm-hmm. is, okay, I need some help. All right, what's the problem? What do, you need, what do you need my help with? How do we go about solving it? And everything that I've I've done in order to allow myself to be more effective is how do I focus on the solution? And that's not an easy task to do by any means. I mean, I, I've been working on this for the past 20-plus years to find you know, what are the best mental strategies, what is the best mindset, what's the, the best attitude to have to allow myself to endure a world that is constantly criticizing me. Mhm.
2: Mhm. Very good. Let's move to the school situation. I know that bullying can be a big problem.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, that's a big a big issue in itself. And bullying in general, I mean there are, there are books written on why bullies bully. Uh, the bottom line is the bullies are kids with their own issues. You know, they they have their own pain. They have their own home situations. They have their own self-concept issues. And oftentimes a bully bullies because they see another kid that reminds them of how vulnerable they are, and they punish that kid. Mm. And sometimes bullying can occur just out of fear. They see a kid that acts so differently from themselves, and they're very confused by it. And what the other kid is doing upsets them so much that they want to... Bully the other kid to get them to stop what they're doing, that's uncomfortable. So when you hear comments like, Why do you act like that? Why don't you be normal? What the bully's saying is, Why don't you be like me? Because I don't get what it is you're doing right now. If you acted more like me, I'd feel comfortable.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Because you'd be acting within my comfort zone. So a lot of bullying is just plain old fashioned ignorance. They don't know how to connect with the person and act so differently from themselves, so they act negatively towards them because of their own discomfort. Now, of course, the solution comes in many forms. First, the schools need to recognize that it exists. Secondly, they need to recognize they have responsibility for dealing with the bullying. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, when it comes to special needs kids, especially kids on the spectrum, they say, oh, work it out yourself or it's part of growing up. Spectrum kids have difficulty managing even the most simple interactions. So how on earth are they going to negotiate the complexities of a bullying situation? There absolutely needs to be adult involvement in remedying those situations.
2: You know, I interviewed uh, Valerie Paradis last week, and she uh, talked about starting a school, uh, an, the Aspie school, uh, and um, – that's an acronym as well, and her son just really thrived there, and it allowed him to um, have his strengths and interests bloom. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like that would be a good alternative for uh, students with Asperger's to be in learning situations where their strengths could help them grow and learn and interact with others.
3: Well, I think it's more important that when you are in any kind of social environment that everybody's on the same page in terms of what are we here to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is problematic with the school system is they're very, they have very much tunnel vision in terms of what their objectives are. Mm -hmm. And they think that the only relationship they need to encourage in a child is the one between them and the textbook. Mm -hmm. And all these these other relationships that go on, they don't want to take responsibility for. Well, the bottom line is a school is a community. And if you don't teach community values within that building, the kids are left to kind of fend for themselves and learn these very dysfunctional ways of interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And it can be very competitive and gossipy and backstabbing and clicky. and, And when you think about what you're trying to teach, this is what ends up happening without adult modeling. And it's important that there be a community mindset in the school system, and there there really isn't one.
2: All right, and we'll continue on this when we come back from break with Brian King. Thank you to our sponsor, Medica. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
5: Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. There you go.
6: You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1 888 200 4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
5: Opinions, Options, Answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Brian King, and we were talking about school issues before the break. Brian, have you been involved in any IEPs, and do schools seem to hit the nail on the head when they design objectives?
3: Well, I'm involved in my, my son's IEPs and I'm also, uh, often tapped on my clients to come sit on the IEP meetings, uh, at, for, for their children as well. And in terms of whether they nail it or not, again, it comes down to how do they define the problem. If they define the problem as the, the child is motivated or the child has an attitude problem and that's not, that's why they're not meeting, uh, you know, the, the objectives or whatever, that's part of the problem initially is you know, defining what is the problem to be solved. And it's not as simply as saying, okay, well, you have a reading challenge, you have a challenge with math. Uh, one of the things that I see routinely is this idea of the need to show your work in math class. Uh, some of my clients can solve problems without having to take those extra steps, but they don't know how they did it. So you're actually asking them to slow their mind down, which to them seems like a waste of time, because why would you want to do something more slowly? And also, there is the organizational piece that requires you to painstakingly think in a linear way to put everything down on paper, and the amount of mental effort that takes can be exhausting. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine you need to do that for homework after a very long day at school when you don't have the mental effort to do so, Mm -hmm. or let's say that... Uh, During a test, you have a very lengthy question to answer, and you're very tired and have difficulty doing that. So it's not simply a resistance to doing the work, which a lot of schools seem to think it is. Mm -hmm. So some of it is just basic lack of understanding of how the spectrum mind works. Mm -hmm. There are some school professionals, though, who are very open-minded, and they want to get other information. They'll talk to the parents. They'll talk to an occupational therapist. They'll talk to myself and say, What information do you have that can help us understand the child's needs better? So in terms of their ability to get it, I think, depends on their own willingness to realize the limitations of their own understanding. As I'm sure there are a lot of your listeners that will relate to the staff who have already made decisions before you even show up. Mm -hmm. They have everything written down the IEP and say we've met as a group and these are the decisions we've made in case closed. So... The potential is definitely there in terms of getting it right on target, but it can really only be done effectively if more people who are committed to meeting the needs of the child are allowed to contribute to that process.
2: Right. And with all the budgetary cuts and et cetera, it's, it's hard to imagine that more resources will be devoted for people to have more training, more understanding, more patience.
3: Yeah, and sometimes that's it. It's not a matter of them not wanting the information. It's a matter of access to it. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: And
3: one of the things that I like to emphasize with schools is it's not always a matter of allocating resources for concrete services. Sometimes it's just a matter of changing your mindset. You know, certain trainings that teachers could, could attend that are just about understanding the Spectrum Mind better, that does not take necessarily a speaking board or extra OT hours or something. It's just about understanding from the people that interact with this child on a given day and simply changing
2: the way you engage
3: a child to make a world of difference in their experience of school.
4: Yeah.
2: Very good point. Let's talk for a few minutes In a few minutes remaining about some adult issues like marriage or uh, employees and employers and what you should disclose in a job interview. Well, the
3: biggest challenge I'm seeing is not only the, the emerging adult spectrum population, but just when you, you look at the basic needs of everyday life that seem to be beyond this population, first and foremost, it's finding employment, either being employed in the area for which you have academic training, whether it's being employed with the number of hours you need, or whether it's being employed at all. So before even moving into the relationship realm, there are the issues of just surviving day-to-day. And one of the biggest obstacles I see out there is the interview process. And from a couple of the people that I've talked to who do interviews, when they tell me what they're looking for, they're looking for someone that doesn't simply meet a job description. They're looking for someone who they see successfully fitting the culture of that environment. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, when you have somebody coming in who has social challenges, you can get a sense of that in the interview and say, okay, this is a person who won't fit the culture here. Maybe they fit the job description very perfectly, but they just won't fit us. And that tends to be a great barrier. So I think what needs to happen in a small degree there is perhaps we can begin hiring people that are suited to completing certain tasks and not alienate them simply because they're not going to engage in water cooler discussion. So there needs to be some open-mindedness on the side of the employers as well. But again, it also, there's also responsibility for the person on the spectrum to be able to go in there and know what their social challenges are and be prepared to address those in a way where they won't come in and be a source of discomfort for everybody around them. Because I've met people on the spectrum who think, well, I can be quirky and I can be uninformed and unself-aware, and people should just deal with me. I'm never going to buy into that. No, because you have to have certain obligations to the context. They're paying you to be there. They're paying you to provide a service. So you can't show up and be expected that I can just be however I want to be, gosh darn, the effect it has on people around me. So, again, it has to come back to, uh, a sense of collaboration, the employer having a certain degree of, of flexibility in terms of letting somebody come in who maybe doesn't fit the environment perfectly but has a great deal to contribute. But on the yeah. other hand, the person on the spectrum is saying, I know I don't fit perfectly, but I'll do the best I can with the skills I have.
2: Mm-hmm. And speaking of collaboration, what's marriage like?
3: What's marriage like?
2: Uh-huh.
3: Well, I'm currently uh, divorced. Uh, but I'm also engaged to a wonderful lady. And marriage, and I do counsel some couples as well, and the marriage breakdown seems to begin with a vastly different definition of what relationships are. The adults on the spectrum that really don't seem to get the whole reciprocal back-and-forth nature of it seem to think of a spouse as someone who's there to solve problems at their convenience. They don't necessarily see it as an ongoing communication, checking in, making sure that other person's needs are met. And that's where it tends to break down, when there's not that collaborative aspect to relationships. Now, some people might say, well, how did they get into a relationship to begin with? Well, what I tend to see is the male on the spectrum and the, the female neurotypical who thinks that they can change the male. Oh, once they're, marri- once they're married, they'll come along, or they just need some growing to do. No, they don't see the challenges that the person has now as we need to work on this now. We don't need to hope it will just come along in the future. So they end up getting married, being incredibly patient, and hope the person will come along, and then one day they realize nothing's changed. So it can be very enabling. So from the standpoint of the person on the spectrum who wants to be involved in a relationship, it has to do with what I said earlier on is clarification, making sure you are certain of what the other person wants from you and you being proactive enough to ask for it instead of just sitting back idly by and waiting for them to let you in on it because people that are neurotypical rely heavily on nonverbal. we will say things like i've given hints i've made suggestions can't you see it on my face don't you know what i want well basically no we don't pick up hints or subtle cues you need to come right out and tell us what you want And the person on the spectrum, it's essential for them to realize they need information that way, that they're not going to pick up those cues, they're not going to pick up the hints. They need to go to their partner and say, how am I doing? How am I doing as a companion? Am I meeting your needs? Am I being a good support for you? If not, what else can I do? And I've, of course, had to learn those lessons the hard way.
2: Very good, Brian. So I guess some take-home messages would be, clarification, communication, and collaboration. Absolutely. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for sharing your personally enlightened insights with us here today.
3: My pleasure.
2: To our listeners, please visit Brian's website, www.spectrumite.com. That's S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M-I-T-E.com. My guest November 3rd will be Beth Maloney, author of Saving Sammy, this week in Toronto, please visit the Autism One Autism Canada Conference October 30th through November 1st. More information is at autismone.org. Don't forget the National Autism Association Conference in November, November 12th through 15th in Florida. Please visit www.nationalautismconference.org. For questions about this program, please email me at t.oranga@autismone.org. At Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica, And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.